All right? I'll jump first. No. Then you jump first. No, I said. What's the matter with you? I can't swim! Microphone check, one, two, what is this? The Investopedia Express up in your business. Digging into markets like gravy on biscuits. Sliding into stocks like cheddar on a trisket. Tisket, tasket, put them in a basket like inverse ETFs. Take off your jacket. Tricks are for kids. Don't be a silly rabbit. Get back in the habit of keeping your risk in line. Add a little wine to your palate. Toss a spring salad. Digging into charts. Sharpening up our smarts. Make friends with the trends. Stack a few ends. Use our maps. Fill the gaps. Reposition and transition. Buy them low. Sell them high. Trust the process. This train is bound for glory. You, me, and the Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. U.S. equity markets are coming off another subdued week with the Dow and S&P 500 sputtering while the Nasdaq managed a small gain. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but this is the pattern we've been seeing all spring. All major U.S. indexes have been stuck in this narrow range as investors assess the Fed's latest moves, the latest reading on inflation, corporate earnings, and the showdown over the U.S. debt ceiling. How narrow? Consider the S&P 500. Its highest close was on April 24th when it closed at 41.69, less than 3% above its low point of 4,056 just two days earlier. On Friday, the S&P 500 closed at 41.24. Fear to the left, greed to the right. Here we are, stuck in the middle with you. Outside the major averages, however, there are some beefy rallies taking shape. We're going to get into those with our pal J.C. Peretz of All Star Charts in just a couple minutes. As for inflation, we finally got a forehandle on consumer prices. April CPI came in at a 4.9% annual basis. Excluding those volatile food and energy prices, prices were up 5.5% year over year. But Supercore prices fell 1.4% last month. Supercore is not the name of my new abs app, but someone write that down. That's a good idea. It's actually the Fed's latest preferred gauge of inflation. Supercore comprises the price of services, things such as barbers, lawyers, or plumbers, excluding energy and housing. And the prices of services is coming down, finally. And what happened to crude oil prices? Didn't OPEC and OPEC Plus decide last month to cut supply to drive prices back up to 90 bucks a barrel? Well, that didn't work out as planned. Crude oil prices have fallen now for four straight weeks and now sit close to $70 per barrel, down from the most recent peak of $83 per barrel on April the 12th. Is that a sign that traders think demand will soften in the event of a possible recession? According to the good folks at the CME Group, crude oil futures are priced right around 70 bucks a barrel throughout the rest of this year and somewhere in the high 60s for most of next year. Lower oil prices are a big lever on lowering overall inflation, so the Fed is getting some help here. And that leads us straight into our big three for the week. Number one, we've talked about volatility in the bond market versus the relative and disturbing calm inside the equity markets recently. Well, things have become even more extreme in the ultra-short-term U.S. Treasury market. While there are inversions up and down the curve, what's happening to spreads is remarkable. The spread between the three-month and the one-month Treasury bill yield has moved from a record high, 1.78%, to a record low, a negative 0.61% in just the past four weeks. In other words, 
One-month treasuries are considered much riskier than three-month treasuries as reflected by their yields. Why is this happening? Well, maybe it has something to do with that debt ceiling deadline that comes on June 1st. Investors went from piling into the one-month treasury, driving yields lower, thinking it was the safer trade since it would mature before the debt ceiling deadline, to now selling the one-month treasury, driving yields higher, and piling into the three-month treasury since it's viewed as the slightly safer asset given the near-term risk that lawmakers won't come to an agreement over the debt ceiling. And number two, since we're going to be hearing and talking a lot about the debt ceiling over the next couple of weeks, let's make sure that everyone on this train is on the same page. All aboard! According to my friends at Investopedia, the debt ceiling is the maximum amount of money that the United States can borrow cumulatively to pay its bills. It borrows that money by issuing bonds. The debt ceiling was created under the Second Liberty Bond Act of 1917, and it's also known as the debt limit or the statutory debt limit. If and when the U.S. government national debt bumps up against the ceiling, and it happens all the time, then the Treasury Department must resort to other extraordinary measures to pay government obligations and expenditures until the ceiling is raised again. The thing is, the raising or suspending of the debt ceiling must be approved by Congress. And when the White House and Congress are on opposing sides like they are now, the debt ceiling becomes a political football with the economy and all of us caught in the middle of the pile. Now, the Treasury Department can maneuver money internally to make sure the government pays its bills, what Secretary Yellen calls extraordinary measures, but eventually, those extraordinary measures become exhausted and more dramatic measures are taken. Those include the suspension of Social Security and Medicare checks, the closing of some government offices and departments like national parks, the furloughing of government workers, and other unpleasant measures. But the thing that everyone from Jamie Dimon to Janet Yellen and every country and investor is worried about is a potential default on our debt. The reason the 10-year U.S. Treasury is the most widely held and most widely trusted asset on the planet is that the U.S. always pays its bills. Even though we've gone $31 trillion into debt to do it, we always find a way to pay. If all of a sudden we could not, as of June 1st, not only will we see those government shutdowns, our credit rating as a nation could be downgraded. Today, the U.S. enjoys a AAA credit rating by the rating agencies, Standard & Poor's, Fitch & Moody's. If that rating is downgraded to AA or AA+, our bonds are going to look a lot riskier and yields are going to jump. When the U.S. 10-year yield spikes, it brings a lot of other non-fixed interest rates with it, impacting everything from credit card loans to some mortgage products and other consumer loans. That will punch consumer spending in the solar plexus, and it'll take a long time for this economy to catch its breath. But even worse, when those yields spike, the 10-year U.S. Treasury bill becomes a lot less attractive to other investors. Investors. And given the fact that foreign governments are holding some $22 trillion in U.S. government debt via those T-bills, a sudden spike due to a credit rating downgrade brought on by the foolishness of lawmakers will not sit well. The biggest holders of U.S. Treasuries, by the way, the governments of Japan, China, and the United Kingdom. And number three, what happened the last time this happened or almost happened? As I said, the U.S. Treasury has come up against the debt limit 89 times since it was created, and 89 times Congress has either voted to raise it or extend the deadline for a few months to allow more negotiations. But back in 2011, it came down to the wire. President Obama was in the White House, but the Republican Party controlled the House of Representatives, just like it does today. It wanted Obama to cut spending after three years of heavy spending and quantitative easing coming out of the great financial crisis. Does that sound familiar? But on July 31st, just two days before the debt limit was to be breached, lawmakers came to a last-minute deal that included $900 billion worth of spending slowdowns over 10 years in exchange for a lifting of the debt ceiling for several years. That led to the passage of the Budget Control Act of 2011, which incrementally raised the debt ceiling from $14.3 trillion to $16.4 trillion by January 27th, 2012. But the delays and the shenanigans did not sit well with the credit rating agencies. 
Following the passage of the act, Standard & Poor's took the radical step of downgrading the United States' long-term credit rating from AAA to AA+, even though the U.S. did not default, saying, quote, the downgrade reflects our opinion that fiscal consolidation plan that Congress and the administration recently agreed to falls short of what, in our view, would be necessary to stabilize the government's medium-term debt dynamics. But also, just like now, the VIX or volatility index was pretty quiet as the debt ceiling drama intensified. Until, that is, the U.S. lost its AAA credit rating. The VIX spiked to 48 amid the downgrade, and stocks, which were already spiraling, went on to drop 19.4% from April to October, a pretty steep correction amid what was otherwise a pretty strong bull market. The dollar nosedived, but U.S. Treasuries actually held up as investors flocked to them as other risky assets plunged. With 4-5% yields being offered by the banks these days, investors have other options, so this time, it might really be different. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and we're going to be focused on the negotiations between House Republicans, led by House Speaker Representative Kevin McCarthy, and President Biden over the debt ceiling. The Republicans want a massive rollback in government spending, including up to $900 billion pledged in the Inflation Reduction Act bill passed last year. The Biden administration has said that is a no-fly zone, so we're going to see who blinks first. This week is also the last big week of earnings season, with reports from major retailers, including Walmart, Target, Home Depot, and Alibaba, among others. Earnings have come in stronger than expected and expectations were low, but no companies have a particularly rosy forecast for the rest of the year and many believe stock prices reflect that things are as good as they're going to get for a while. We'll also get another snapshot of consumer spending when the U.S. Census Bureau reports April retail sales. Consumers have become increasingly pessimistic about the economy amid rising interest rates, persistently high inflation, and fears about a recession. The University of Michigan's Consumer Sentiment Index fell in early May to its lowest level since November. We'll see if slightly lower mortgage rates here in the U.S. have had any impact on the housing market. We're going to get the latest updates on building permits, housing starts, existing home sales, and the NAHB's Housing Market Index for the month of May. It's home buying season. Let's go. Outside of all the churn in the major equity indexes, there are some bull markets running hard and some even more bullish patterns developing in sectors that don't get a lot of our attention. You'll only find these if you analyze 5,000 charts every week and apply the sweet science of technical analysis to examine them. Yet there's only a few people on the planet that actually do this. They are fifth degree black belts in the dojo of charts and prices. And one of them is our very good friend, JC Peretz, the founder of All Star Charts and the man behind our ever popular chart advisor newsletter that we send out every trading day of the week. JC is back on the express and he's taking us into the wild to find opportunities, danger zones, and buried treasures hiding in plain sight as well as a few good wine picks for our spring tables. Welcome back to the Express, JC. Good to see you, my friend. Good to be here, my man. What an intro. I love that. You're good at this. So take us into the wild here. You examine, as I said, thousands of charts every week. You're finding some things that are kind of hiding in plain sight, as I said. And let's start with your Hall of Famers list, but also that big index that a lot of people don't look at because they're looking at the Dow Jones Industrials, but the NICE index, there's a lot going on in there. Remember what's inside things like the Dow Jones Industrial Average and NICE. You're going to get a lot more value-oriented areas of the market, like industrials and things like that, and, and less percentage of growth and technology and communications and consumer discretionary and internet and software and things like that. You're going to find a lot more of that in the NASDAQ 100, which is basically all that for all intents and purposes, right? There are no banks or energy stocks or materials or industrials in the NASDAQ, right? Those are the growth oriented areas. So it's not that one index is better than the other. It's just that they're different things. So I think it's as investors, it's important to understand that over, I think like 40 something percent of the New York Stock Exchange stocks 
are not even American stocks. They're ADRs or foreign companies that trade in the United States, which is a completely different makeup than something like the NASDAQ, right? They're just different. It doesn't make one better than the other. Just understand what it is that we're analyzing. I think it's very valuable. And on, on that note, it's not just a stock market. Like we talk about, hey, Caleb, what the market do today? Oh, Dow up 200. Great. Simple. But at the end of the day, there are 30 stocks in the Dow. There are 500 stocks in the S&P 500 or 503 or whatever it is, right? There's 3,000 stocks in the Russell 3000. There's 100 stocks in the NASDAQ 100. 2,000 stocks in the Russell 2000. It's a market of stocks. You taught me that. You taught me that. It is, though. There are components. The market is made up of things. What are those things doing? If you get that right, you're going to get where the index itself is going. If you want to do a, a sum of the parts breath analysis on the market, there are 30 stocks you need to look at. It is the Dow Jones Industrial Average. This is the world's most important index. What direction are they going in? Are these 30 stocks going up? Are they going down? Are most of them going up? Some of them going down? Are they going sideways? If you can identify that from a sum of the parts perspective, you're going to get a better idea as the direction of the overall market. You got to look inside, under the hood, what's happening. And the bottom line is, I don't know what investors are looking at in terms of a bad market. The S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 both closed April, the highest monthly close in a year, FYI. The advanced decline line on the Dow Jones Industrial Average is at all-time highs. The United Kingdom, all-time highs. France, all-time highs. Denmark, all-time highs. Germany, all-time highs. It's a global stock market. It's not just, what did the Dow do today? Just because your country is underperforming, that's not the bull market's fault. Understand that this is a broad Japan absolutely crushing it as well, right? If we start to see rotation into emerging markets, which, man, that Economist magazine cover just came out saying the peak in China. Oh, I want to buy Chinese internet stocks so bad. Literally, I already pinged the crew to uh, run that scan and sort Chinese stocks by relative strength. And let's see what we could find out of there because I have a funny feeling the economist is going to the top take that one in terms of the short China story. And we could take the other side. So I'm going to do a little homework. That's all. Okay, I'll do a little homework. No big deal. Take us into small caps. Small caps traditionally sensitive to economic conditions but they range in size. I know you've been examining those a lot. We talked about it in your Chart Advisor newsletter and also on your own blog there. What are you seeing inside small caps? What's that telling you about trends? What's that telling you about where the strength is, if at all, in that sector? The interesting part about small caps is that the correlations amongst themselves relative to the overall index is much lower than, say, something like a large cap index, where they're going to move more like the overall market. In terms of small caps, they're much smaller, number one. Number two, if an institution is coming in to buy this stock, these are huge institutions. Like they need to buy a lot in order for it to be meaningful to their assets under management. And because these are small market caps by definition, there's just less to go around. So the relative strength is really going to climb to the top because they got nowhere to hide. If the biggest hedge funds in the world decided to start buying Google, it's barely going to make a dent in the whole thing because it's such a massive liquid company. You can get in and out, no problem. But in the case of a small cap, that's not necessarily the case. So you're going to really see that relative strength. The institutions are really going to bully them around. So you can really see what's going on there. So that's just an interesting part about small caps. At the index level, understand it's not necessarily a risk on versus risk off. People are like, oh, small caps are underperforming. That's a risk off. Not necessarily, right? Small caps underperformed throughout the entire back half of the 1990s. And correct me if I'm wrong, Caleb, those are some good times to be long stocks, right? It's just that the large caps we're the big leaders in that particular market environment. So it's not necessarily risk on, risk off. Now, with that being said, if small caps are literally crashing and making multi-year lows and, and making huge tops, 
chances are the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ 100 are not ripping higher, right? They tend to dance in sync to a certain extent, particularly in extreme moves. So you could look at strong weakness in small caps, you know, as a leading indicator to that point. But when you look at it, we're back down to last summer's lows. These are last summer's lows. Buyers stepped in when they had to. By the way, these were the highs in 2018 and the highs in 2020. This is in the Russell 2000 Small Cap Index ETF, IWM. That form of resistance, if you will, in 2018 and 2020, when the small caps peaked and then sold off, we rallied above that level after COVID and then came down and retested those levels last summer. We rallied from there and now here we are back to the scene of the crime. My bet is that the buyers step in once again, right? That's my bet. And our minor leaguers list just so happens to be a list of small cap stocks sorted by relative strength. These are the strongest small cap stocks that are already making new 52-week highs while the index itself is near new 52-week lows. That's tremendous relative strength and our minor leaguers. And there's one more thing, Caleb. We changed the rules in small caps because the rules, for it's stupid. So we do what we want around here, especially when it makes a lot more sense than something that's stupid. My entire life, small caps have been between 300 million in market cap to 2 billion. My whole career, I've been at this for over 20 years. But now we have multi-trillion dollar companies that we didn't have before when these stupid rules were made in the first place. But we decided that doesn't make any sense. I think you got to be at least a billion. If you're not a billion, I don't want to talk to you. Very few exceptions, but that's the exception to the rule. Maybe a 700, $750 million liquid stock, maybe sometimes. And then I think 4 billion, one to four. Could we increase it and make it higher? Sure. But I think one to four, you got plenty of stocks that are there because they're already a billion, so they've proven they're not completely useless, but they're not already large caps and have gotten called up to the bigs, if you will, hence the minor leaguers list. I think there's a lot of opportunities there. And then for us, mid caps are that four to 30, 4 billion to 30 billion, I think is, is a nice sweet spot. Again, can we argue that maybe it should be 50 billion? Sure. But I think from four to 30 gives you enough to get you what you need. The stocks can still triple before they get to 100 billion. That's an interesting sweet spot for mid caps, which traditionally mid caps are between two and 10 billion. So what we're doing right now with respects to small caps is looking at the strongest ones. And what you'll find is these are not defensive areas. These are biotechnology, electrical equipment and parts and industrials. Sure, you're going to get some gold stocks sprinkled around and things like that because gold tends to be doing well. But again, gold doesn't necessarily even need to be defensive either. It's just that gold stocks are going up now. Let's talk a little bit about banks because you write a lot about this, folks. We'll link to JC's blog at All Star Charts and also to the Chart Advisor newsletter if you want this in your inbox every single day. But you talk about the weakness in banks, but it's not all banks. It's a lot of these regional banks, which are obviously getting hit because of the headline risk, because of the concerns about what happened in Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, and First Republic. But there's a difference between what's happening there and what's happening across the entire banking sector. How does JC see it? You know, I got to be honest with you, I'm surprised that the market doesn't care at all. I thought it would care somewhat. I thought it would care a lot, to be honest. <laughs> but at the very least, it would care a little bit. Market doesn't care at all. People think, JC, when's the stock market going to bottom? Stock market going to bottom. Fourth quarter last year, S&P 500 was up 7%. We were up another 7% in the first quarter. Go back. Any bear market. Back to back. We don't get back to back positive quarters in bear markets, yet alone 3x the average return, right, Caleb? Right. Yeah, that's what I said. It's a rally that a lot of people just don't want to believe in. Yet there it is, front and center. So let's talk about 
some of the other sectors you're watching, but I also want to get into the commodities of it all and into the metals because you're the one who told me to pay attention to Dr. Copper. What is copper telling us right now? And what is copper telling us relative to some of the other metals and what's going on across intermarkets? Yeah, I mean, that's the big one. You just nailed it right there. What's it doing relative to gold? You know, which traditionally that copper gold ratio is a tremendous coincident and often leading indicator to interest rates. This thing's just collapsing, that copper gold ratio. And by the way, it makes sense because you're also seeing regional banks versus REITs, that ratio, regional banks versus real estate investment trusts and copper versus gold. And I'll explain very quickly for those who are not following the intermarket relationships. But if the market believes that interest rates are going up, you're going to see relative outperformance out of regional banks, right? Their margins increase, all sorts of stuff. And if the interest rates are rising, then the market there's less of a reason to have high dividend paying securities like REITs. So that regional banks to REITs ratio tends to move with the US 10 year yield. Same thing to the downside. The market thinks rates are going lower. That's not good for regional banks. They're going to underperform. And then REITs tend to get a bid because fixed income investors that aren't able to get their yield in the bond market are able to get it in the stock market. So you're going to get that bid. So it moves with yield. Same thing with copper gold, right? If rising interest rates, rising economy, inflation, that's good for co copper, all those things. Interest rate is falling. That means that there's more defensive. You're going to get a relative bid out of gold. So that copper gold ratio, again, with yields, both of those are collapsing. What is copper telling me? Dr. Copper, if you will, Mr. Caleb? I mean, it keeps pointing to lower rates, right? It keeps saying buy stocks, buy bonds. It's really what it's saying to me. Now, you were also the guy who taught me about Dow theory, you know, especially when you have markets like the Dow Industrials and the Dow Transports moving together, that's usually a sign of good trend. That kind of broke down a few weeks back. What are you seeing right now in terms of where these markets are compared to one another? And what does that tell you about kind of where we're headed? Yeah, you know, transports have really been just trading sideways. The strength that we've seen in technology this year has really helped drive the Dow Jones Industrial Average's exposure to Apple and things like that. And the capitalization too. the Dow has uh, these massive market cap stocks and what has been the leaders, right? Mega cap tech and things like that. So any exposure there is going to outperform. So just think of it like that. Even something like a Berkshire Hathaway that you would consider a more industrial value has outperformed because of its exposure and technology and things like that, right? Yeah, it's the biggest owner of Apple. For sure. So you can see sort of that dynamic taking place. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's bullish or bearish as it is what's working and, and what's not working as well. It's not like the transports are crashing. They're just trading sideways slightly underperforming the Dow Jones Industrial Average. So we start to get some rotation back into industrials, materials, and some of the underperforming areas more recently, which would be perfectly normal in a bull market is that sector rotation. Because remember, here we are. How easy is it to talk about mega cap tech and growth and how great these stocks are doing? These were the only stocks last year that were not working. Everything else was already working except these stocks. And now they're the best performers. So that sector rotation, as they say, is the lifeblood of a bull market. So what would happen next? What would happen next, in my opinion, would be that rotation back into industrials, transportation stocks, emerging markets, right? Like that would be the next logical rotation that I'm going to be looking out for to see if we see. And now all of a sudden, transports catch up to the industrials. And we're talking about how both of them are making new 52-week highs. All right. We usually ask our guests for their favorite term or their favorite financial definition. But because I have a fifth degree black belt in technical analysis, I got to know what's your favorite pattern right now? It doesn't have to be a particular stock or index. What's the favorite pattern right now that you're just loving? Yeah, it's the new highs, new lows list right now. You know, getting back to it's a market of stocks. People are like, well, JC, you know, what's the level in the S&P 500? And it's like, well, it's less about the level and more about what the stocks in the S&P 500 do. 
So if you want to level, yeah, that 4,200 or so, we start breaking out above that. Yeah, that's positive. No question. It's more like, okay, do we get the expansion in the new highs list? Like, that's what I'm looking for. Like, if you want to level, sure, 4,200-ish. But I'm more interested in do we get that breath thrust? I think it's coming. I think it's going to be led by technology and healthcare because healthcare is 14% of the S&P. Technology is 26% of the S&P. And by the way, that technology number does not include Google, Facebook, Tesla, or Amazon. None of those are tech stocks. Those are consumer discretionary and communication stocks. You add that to the 26 on tech. Now you're talking half the S&P 500 is those mega cap tech stocks, technology, and healthcare, right? That's half. So what's it going to take? I'd be watching those. And a weaker dollar, no question, is the catalyst. It's your point. Communication stocks kind of ripping right now. Look at Meta. Uh, look at a few of those other ones. They have been very, very... But again, Caleb, those are the worst performers over the last couple of years. Those are the ones with the highest short interest, and now they're the leaders. Sector rotation. Sector rotation, reversal, all the good things that the technical analysis like to teach us that I learned from you. All right, JC, if you think you're getting out of here without a couple of wine recommendations, you got another thing coming. A lot of folks may not know you are a sommelier. You have great taste in wine. I always come to you for my picks. It's spring. I'm making bronzino. I'm making big roasted vegetable dishes and big salads to sit outside and eat with my family. Give me a red, give me a white, and let's get after it. Well, bronzino, for those who are unaware, is a Mediterranean sea bass. It's the Italians like to take credit. The Greeks like to take credit. You know, at the end of the day, those in the Mediterranean know how it's done. I personally am partial to, I love Italian food and Greek. You know, when I think Bronzino, I think Greece. I think being in Mykonos partying or in Santorini walking around, you know, like I think Greece. I think Bronzino. I think Asirtico. From Santorini, it's going to be a very high acid white wine. Santorini in the 1700s was the place. France wasn't even on the map yet. Santorini was the place. The kings would all drink wine from Santorini. I would get the Asitico from there and drink that on a nice warm day outside with your bronzino. You're going to be like, whoo, perfect. All right, give me a red for that early evening. Sun's coming down. Maybe I have a tenderloin going in the oven. Maybe I have some roast vegetables going, big salad, going to sit outside on the patio. What are we drinking? I want a crispy red for the spring, though, for that meal. Yeah, you had me at tenderloin. I was already kind of leaning in that direction. And once you said tenderloin, you got to go red burgundy. Come on. Very easy decision there, particularly when you said early evening, right? Like early evening, you start crushing Barolos, you're going to be hammered. Like it's too much. And you said the pork, the tenderloin, like with a red burgundy right there or something, like a palm art or something like that. Oh, yeah. You know, or maybe like a Jevry Chamber 10. That'll get you done. Won't set you back too much like some of these burgundies can. You get a Volnay, get your hands on a Volnay. You know, these are some high quality red burgundies that early evening with a tenderloin in the oven, you're going to be very happy. That's what you got in your glass. I love it. Mouth is watering right now. Come for the charts. Stay for the wine. JC Peretz, the founder of All Star Charts, a great friend of mine in Investopedia, and the author of our Monday through Friday Chart Advisor newsletter. Sign up. We'll put a link in the show notes as well as a link to the blog and all those good wine recommendations. JC, always a pleasure, my friend. Thanks for coming back on The Express. You got it. No problem. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Tommy Yu, who hit us up on the gram. Tommy wants to learn more about covered calls, and we like that term given the relative calm in the equity options market lately. 
According to our favorite website, a covered call is an option strategy in which the investor selling call options owns an equivalent amount of the underlying security. To execute this, an investor who holds a long position in an asset then writes or sells call options on that same asset to generate an income stream. The investor's long position in the asset is the cover because it means the seller can deliver the shares if the buyer of the call option chooses to exercise. Covered calls are what we call a neutral strategy, meaning the investor only expects a minor increase or decrease in the underlying stock price for the life of the written call option. This strategy is often employed when an investor has a short-term neutral view of the asset and for this reason holds the asset long and simultaneously has that short position via the option to generate income from the option premium. Simply put, if an investor intends to hold the underlying stock for a long time but does not expect an appreciable price increase in the near term, they can generate income or premiums for their account while they wait it out. Learn more about covered calls in our options guide on Investopedia, and thanks to Tommy Yu for the suggestion. We're going to be sending you a pair of our finest socks for your spring styles. We're going to let President Barack Obama take us out this week, and we're going to take it all the way back to July 11th, 2011, as the U.S. was coming up against that debt ceiling crisis we were talking about earlier. Here's the president in a press conference talking about the consequences of breaching the debt ceiling, the impact on our credit rating, and why his fellow politicians needed to overcome their differences. If we don't raise the debt ceiling and we see a crisis of confidence in the markets and suddenly interest rates are going up significantly and everybody is paying higher interest rates on their car loans, on their mortgages, on their credit cards, and that's sucking up a whole bunch of additional money out of the pockets of the American people. I promise you, they won't like that. Now, I will say that some of the professional politicians know better. And for them to say that we shouldn't be raising uh, the debt ceiling is irresponsible. They know better. Joe Biden was vice president at that time. Let's see if history can be his guide this time around. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to J.C. Peretz of All-Star Charts for climbing back aboard the Express. We need his smarts, his charts, and his wine picks. We'll link to his blog, our Chart Advisor newsletter, and all the reports we cited on this week's show. Find those in the show notes wherever you express yourself and on investopedia.com slash the Express Podcast. And we'll talk again a little further on down the line.